Section 43 of The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Ducepe. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Reverend M. P. Hill. God's Existence. An atheistic jibe. Theism, a belief in a personal God, would have us divide the world into earth and sky. Men run about the earth, and God is seated in the skies, whence he rules the earth. But astronomy steps in and removes the sky, and with it the God who dwells in it. Astronomy has pushed the limits of the universe so far as to leave no room for a god. Schopenhauer The Answer Schopenhauer has not said the last word on the subject. God is not the subject matter of astronomy or of any other physical science. It is not by the telescope that God is discovered, but by an instrument of a different order. The human mind by means of reflection, can penetrate beyond the stars and discover the ultimate cause of all things. In maintaining the existence of God, we must remind the atheist of our day that we are not holding a brief for the existence of some obscure being whose worshippers are of yesterday and whose worship is being obtruded upon the intelligence of the world. A belief in God is the earliest and most constant fact in human history. Moreover, a belief in God has laid hold of countless intellects of the highest order. And yet today, the shallowest of minds brush it aside as though it were one of those empty hypotheses that rise and disappear in a generation. Ah, but remember, says the atheist, those highly intellectual believers of the past weigh little in the balance today. They were ignorant of the science of our day, which is fatal to the doctrine of a personal God. But not so fast. A glance at another article in this work, Science and Faith, will reveal the fact that most of the great leaders of science in the 19th century were believers in a personal God. Science and atheism have indeed met in the same mind, but in our own age, considering the influences at work producing atheism and agnosticism, the fact that a man of science is without faith is neither more nor less surprising than that a merchant or a lawyer or an artist should be an unbeliever. The fact proves nothing as regards the necessary bearing of science on religion. The neglect of practical religion, lack of instruction, the dominion of passion over reason and grace, any of these facts in a man's life may account for his lapsing into atheism. The kind of science for which the present generation is mostly distinguished is that of the experimental sort. But what has experimental science produced that tells against the existence of a personal God? 
experiment can never land us in a knowledge of ultimate causes. As soon as it reaches the outer confines of experience, it must hand over the work of investigation to rational philosophy. And who is not aware of the chaos that reigns in the philosophy of the day? Geological science has thrown some light upon the history of our globe, but it knows nothing of what went before. History and archaeology, in the hands of the atheist, have been wielded against a belief in God, and an attempt has been made to bring the infinite and eternal God down to the level of the national and tribal gods of the Gentiles. But the result has been to throw into greater relief the immense contrast between the one invisible and omnipotent God of the chosen people and the countless anthropomorphic figments of the pagan mind. The fact that so spiritual a conception of deity was carried down through the long ages of its history by a people surrounded on all sides by carnal-minded idolaters is itself no small proof of the existence of a God whose providence is the key to this historical anomaly. As to astronomical science, it has only exhibited a wider domain of creative power than was known to the ancients. God's world is larger than we had thought, but astronomy has not proved that he does not still hold it in the hollow of his hand. In a word, there is no science or other branch of knowledge that lends any support to the denial of a personal God. Atheism is generated either in minds that have never seriously and patiently examined into the evidence of God's existence, or in minds that have been warped by moral delinquency. Superficiality and narrowness of outlook are the dominant qualities of much philosophizing on the subject. The shallowness that begets atheism was well discerned by one of the wisest of modern minds. A little philosophy, says Bacon, inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. For while the mind of man looketh upon second causes scattered, it may sometimes rest in them, and go no further. But when it beholdeth the chain of them, confederate and linked together, it must needs fly to providence and deity. Essays, Atheism We shall now proceed to unfold some of the arguments by which human reason has demonstrated the existence of a supreme being. As we are not writing a treatise, the argumentation cannot be exhaustive, but it will serve to show how by reason and reflection the invisible things of him, as St. Paul expresses it, are clearly seen from the creation of the world, being understood by the things that are made. Proofs of God's Existence the universe must have had a beginning. Therefore, it must have got its beginning from a being who himself had no beginning. Let us endeavor to bring out the force of this reasoning. 
First, as regards the material universe, things have come to their present condition by a series of changes. These changes are still observable on the largest scale. We see them in the processes of growth and decay. We notice, too, that one thing produces another, and that other a third. And there is evidence that such has been the case for ages. Hence, a series or rather many series of causes and effects coming down from a remote past. Now my reason tells me that such a chain of causation must have had a beginning. Such a series of causes and effects without a beginning is inconceivable. There must have been one first cause, and therefore one not caused by another but subsisting in and through itself. Let us throw a little light upon this conclusion by an illustration. My eyes are at this moment resting upon an oak tree. Let us designate it by the letter A. Now A is the offspring of another oak, B, which in turn owes its origin to C and so on, back to D, E, and the rest. Is the series infinite, that is to say, endless? Or is it composed of a finite number, one that can be counted? We assert that it cannot be infinite, it must have had a beginning. And our reasons for the assertion are these. Number one, if it were infinite, the series would never have come down to A. Let us prove this. Let us go back to E, familiar to the eyes of our great-great-grandfathers. Was the series infinite when it reached E? There is as much or as little reason for saying that it was infinite then as for saying that it is infinite now. But if infinite then, not a single oak could have been added to it, for an infinite number cannot receive any addition, and therefore E could not have propagated its kind. And we should not now be contemplating A, which nevertheless stands before us in all its beauty. Therefore, the series was not infinite. There must have been a first oak, unproduced by any other. Number two. Again, if the series were infinite, A would be the last of its race, and hence, by the way, would be an object of the greatest curiosity. But what an absurdity to suppose that an acorn falling from A might not produce a tree of the same species. The series of oaks was, therefore, not endless, and there was one tree that began the series. The reader will remember that we are dealing with a genealogy of oaks only as an illustration of a principle, and the principle is that no chain of causes and effects is possible unless there be a first cause, one unproduced by another. But if this principle is once fairly established, the conclusion is irresistible that if we trace the numerous series of causes and effects that have made the world what it is today back to the beginning, we must arrive 
at the first cause, which has not been produced by another. And now, having arrived at the first cause of things, we must evolve the idea of a first cause and exhibit what is logically contained in it. We shall see ultimately that the first cause is identical with the sovereign God, whose existence it is our purpose to prove. The first cause was not produced by another. How then are we to account for its existence? Did it produce itself? Or did it start out of nothingness of itself? Both questions are too absurd to be considered. If therefore the first cause was not produced either by itself or by anything else, we must conclude that it was not produced at all. Its existence is due to no manner of causation whatever. And hence, we are forced to the further conclusion that it must have its reason for existing in its very nature. Its nature requires it to exist. But if its nature requires it to exist, it cannot be conceived as non-existent. In other words, it is eternal. This, by the way, is an answer to Darwin's feeble question. Whence came the first cause? And how did it arise? And now a few further deductions. The first cause, as we have seen, exists by a necessity of its nature. But if a thing exists at all, it must have some determinate form or mode of existence. A thing does not exist in general, but as this or that in particular, and with a definite nature and definite attributes. Hence, when we ascribe essential and necessary existence to a being, we ascribe it to that being such as it is, and as having a certain nature and certain attributes. Hence, its nature and attributes, or all that it is, and whatever it is, partake of the same necessity as its existence. Therefore, such a being is immutable, for any change would make it different from what it necessarily and essentially is. Later on, we shall see other reasons why any change, whether in essentials or in accidentals, is impossible. At every step, we are getting a better glimpse of the wonderful ideas which are wrapped up in the one idea of the first cause. There are more to come. The next deduction is the most important of all. It is that the first cause must possess unlimited being or unlimited perfection. It must be infinite. We shall not rehearse here the more abstruse metaphysical proofs of this thesis. A few simpler considerations will suffice to show that the first cause is infinitely perfect. First, the very fact that it is a self-existent being is proof sufficient. What higher perfection is conceivable than that the very nature of a thing requires it to exist? Or to put it somewhat differently, what higher grade of existence can we conceive than that in virtue of which a thing possesses its being of itself from eternity? Among created beings, 
we admire a person who is in some degree independent of outside influences in the development of some personal perfection. When, for instance, he adds to his knowledge by thinking out for himself the solution of the most intricate problems. And the higher the perfection evolved, the greater our admiration. What then shall we say of that being which has, by a necessity of its nature, not any mere power of self-development, but that which, in any case, is the basis and groundwork of all actual perfection, even the highest, vis-à-vis -vis actual being or existence. Any specific perfection, finite or infinite, in any being supposes the existence of that being, and hence existence or actual being must be the basis and condition of any perfection, even though it be infinite. Therefore, self-existence must itself be an infinite perfection. But no infinite perfection can exist in a finite being. Therefore, the first cause is infinite. In the second place, we can deduce the infinite perfection of the first cause from the nature of the act by which it brings things into existence. The first cause simply creates or produces things out of nothing. This may be argued from the very fact that it is the first cause, but the deduction will be made clearer at a later stage of the discussion. Now any single act of creation is a proof of infinite power. For by infinite power, we mean power so great that no finite thing, no matter how perfect, and no degree of perfection in a thing are beyond its range. But the first cause confers upon the thing created its very being, and to create the very being of a thing argues greater power than to create any specific perfection in it. For the perfections or attributes of a thing are but modes of its being. Hence, no conceivable perfection in a thing exceeds the creative power of the first cause, and therefore its power is unlimited. Furthermore, if we limit the creative power of the first cause, we imply that some things are too great to be included within its range. But a little reflection will show that in this connection, greater and less are virtually one thing. No greater exercise of power is involved in the creation of greater things than in the creation of lesser. As to create is to produce out of nothing. There is no process to be gone through. There is no existing matter to work upon. And hence, creating is simply willing. Let there be light, and light was made. And consequently, so far as the creating agent is concerned, it is as easy to will a universe as to will a grain of sand. And on the side of the object to be created, the task of creating cannot be greater in one case than in another as all things created are simply drawn from nothing and are thus reduced to the same level.
Therefore, there can be nothing so great or so perfect as to be beyond the creative power of the first cause. Therefore, its power is limitless or infinite. And here again, we can argue from an infinite attribute to an infinitude of being or of perfection. In the process we have been following thus far, we have traced all the series of changes that have taken place in the universe to their beginning and have arrived at the first cause in which all things have their origin. Now there is a class of atheists, certain materialists, who admit that there must have been a beginning of all change, but who are pleased to find the ultimate cause of all change in matter. They assume without proof that material substance existed from all eternity, uncaused and self-subsisting, needing no God to have created or preserved it or unfolded its energies, and having in itself the germ of all its future activities. But it will not be difficult to show that self-subsisting and self-evolving matter is an impossibility. First, it is impossible that matter could have evolved its own energies. For primeval self-existing matter must originally have been either in a state of rest or in a state of motion. If in a state of motion, there must have been a beginning of the motion. For motion from eternity involves all the absurdities included in the notion of an infinite series of causes and effects. Hence, our supposed primeval matter must have been originally in a quiescent state. Let us realize what this implies. Imagine a particle of primitive matter suspended in space, quiet but capable of motion. What will set it in motion? The law of inertia is there to forbid it to move a fraction of an inch unless acted upon by some outside force. Primeval matter would therefore stand in need of some external cause of motion. And what we say of local motion is true of every form of activity and of every exertion of energy. It must have a beginning, and the beginning must originate from without. For in the first place, no exertion of energy in matter is possible without some local motion. But the local motion cannot be spontaneous, for the law of inertia forbids it. In the second place, and apart from the law of inertia, there is nothing in the attributes of matter that could enable it to exert its energies. Imagine a particle of quiescent matter a moment before its first display of energy. What can possibly determine it to act in the next moment rather than five minutes, or for that matter, five centuries later? Is it in the power of matter to choose the moment of its awakening from its eternal slumber? It would be puerile to suppose that matter was predetermined to act in some such way as the hammer of an alarm clock is predetermined to act by the winding and setting of the clock. In the case of the alarm clock, the alarm bell displays its energy at a certain moment, 
but its action supposes a continuous mechanical movement preceding and leading up to it. And even that would be impossible without the action of the human hand that wound up the clock. There is nothing in matter that can give the first impulse to its activities. The impulse must be imparted by one in whom mind and will make him independent of time, or to put it more accurately, enable him to make a beginning of time by setting things in motion. Matter, therefore, depends for its activity upon a sovereign artificer. But does it depend upon him also for its existence? May not matter have had an eternal and independent existence of its own? We answer no, because self-existence would be incompatible with its nature and its attributes. Self-existent matter must have had some determinate state or condition of existence. To begin with, it must have been either in a state of rest or in a state of motion. But we know that of itself, matter cannot determine its existing in either state. It is indifferent to either and must be set in motion or be brought to a state of rest by outside influences. But as it must be in either of the two states, and yet cannot of itself be in either, it cannot exist at all unless existence be given it by some external cause. It requires, in a word, to be created, and thus the first cause appears under the aspect of a creator. And what is true of rest in motion is true of other conditions of matter. Matter must be either in a solid or in a liquid or in a gaseous state. It must also be in a definite place. But matter is of itself indifferent to all these conditions taken severally, though by external causes it may be made to pass from one condition to another. Therefore, as self-existence would argue, self-determination as regards these conditions, matter cannot be self-existent and must have been created. In the second place, if matter were self-existent, it would be incapable of change. And yet we know it to be changeable from one form or condition to another. It must now be evident that the first cause possesses the nature and the attributes which we ascribe to God. It, or rather He, is self-existent and eternal. He is infinitely perfect and is therefore infinitely powerful and infinitely wise or intelligent, though His infinite wisdom and power may be deduced also from the creative act. He is the creator of the visible universe and is therefore its sovereign Lord and master. That there can be only one such being is evident from the fact that he is infinite. The infinite must comprehend all being, and hence there can be but one who is infinite. In saying, however, that the infinite embraces all being, we must distinguish between two senses in which the proposition may be taken.
To use the language of theologians, God contains all things in himself, either formally, that is to say, as things are in themselves, or eminently, that is, in some higher or more excellent sense. Formally, he possesses all his own essential and infinite attributes. Eminently, he possesses the perfections belonging to created beings. If those perfections are of the spiritual order, he possesses them in an infinite degree and in a way that makes them one with his divine essence, which is not true of created things. Goodness, wisdom, and power, which may belong to created things, are possessed by God in an infinite degree and without any admixture of imperfection. The qualities of matter he cannot possess formally, as that would argue limitation and imperfection. But even these qualities, as well as all other attributes of finite things, may be said to be in God eminently, inasmuch as the eternal exemplars of things are conceived by the divine intelligence, and his omnipotence enables him to bring them into existence. There is only one God, therefore, and only one Creator, and consequently only one source of finite being, whether of the spiritual or of the material order. But the argument from causation is not the only one by which God's existence is proved. The argument from design, as it is generally termed, is no less cogent. It is based on the order and beauty of the universe. Order, especially on a large scale, cannot be a result of chance, nor can it be produced by a blind and purposeless combination of forces. Order supposes a mind at work, and a mind working according to plan. Now the presence of order in the world is easily observed. It is noticed, for instance, that many things work together for a common end, as for example, in the orderly recurrence of the seasons, a fact that includes so many interesting phenomena connected with the preservation of animal and vegetable life. Everywhere we see in things the purposes for which they were made. A study of the human body, for instance, reveals a wonderful adaptation of means to ends. Every organ being most aptly designed to serve a distinctive purpose of its own. The human eye alone furnishes overwhelming evidence of the presence of design. But a design supposes a designer. And here too we find that the great designer is not merely an artist working in materials ready to his hand. He gives things their very natures and all their properties. For in all the operations of nature that furnish evidence of design, there is a dependence on the natural properties of things, and the natural properties of things must be rooted in their natures. It is indeed by reason of the natural essences and qualities of things that nature works out her grand exhibitions of design. It is because the natures of things conspire so perfectly and so intimately with the general plan that they must be pronounced to have the same origin as the plan itself. 
the origin of all things and of their attributes must therefore be the first great cause whom we call God. So much, and indeed much more, which our limited space must exclude, does our reason tell us about the existence and the attributes of the Supreme Being. But reason is not our only teacher. God himself has deigned to teach us by direct revelation. He has made himself known to man from the very beginning, and the history of his revelation, carefully preserved, contains within itself its own credentials. The long but consistent narrative of the career of the chosen people given in the Bible, a people marvelously preserved in their purity of belief and worship amidst pagan surroundings, till led finally to the fullness of revelation in the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, possesses an irresistible power of conviction to those who will take the pains to read it and ponder it in its entirety and compare it with any other history, sacred or profane. Promises fulfilled at the appointed time, this is the prevailing note heard in every part of the Grand Symphony, which finally reaches its climax in the wonderful life of the God-Man. The life of Jesus, taken in its entire compass, and properly related to all that had gone before it, and to all that has happened since, has thus become the key to the world's history, and has confirmed in the minds of untold millions their faith in the existence of the infinite and eternal God. End of section 43 God's Existence Recording by Tony Ducepec